brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. Masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know, the less you really do Where would we be without THC? We know the lying to us, just don't know to what degree Where would we be without THC? All right, higher side chatters, when we dig into the details of many subjects that are generally taken for granted, we find a great deal of manipulation, half-truths, and faulty premises in which entire fields are sometimes based, and this goes for an increasingly large chunk of history and science. Materialism, Darwinism, the Apollo moon missions, Columbus discovering America, mass shootings, 9-11, the cover-up of exotic technology and alternative fuel sources, genuine medicine, historic timelines, and maybe even some major elements of our earthly system itself. Everybody draws their lines differently, but these are just some of the examples we've examined in the past that actually encompass huge portions of popular worldviews and to see through even just a few of them leads one to reflect on not only what else we take for granted that could possibly be concocted by the capstone cabal, but just how powerful and all-encompassing are the nefarious few. What kind of world am I in? Are we as blissfully ignorant of our true situation as the cattle grazing on the farm? Well, when the big club goes back further than we can trace our own family lines and we're forced to go through the brainwashing education system that has been cooked up by those very same untrustworthy tyrants... Good luck getting it all worked out. As the theme song says, we know they're lying to us, we just don't know to what degree. Well, today we're blowing the barn doors right off the hinges and torching every sacred cow left inside. Because today's guest, John LeBon, pushes the needle firmly into the red as he tackles some of what seem to be the most controversial and tightly held so-called truths out there. John is a self-described real skeptic from Australia, just asking questions about what we take for granted. He runs JohnLeBond.com as well as a popular YouTube channel, and I think this is going to be a pretty wild ride. The controversial question asker, the full-spectrum skeptic and conspiratorial thunder from down under, JLB, welcome to the higher side. 
What a fantastic introduction. Thank you very much, Greg, for having me. And yeah, let's see where this goes. I do cover a lot of topics on my website and on my YouTube channel. So this could go in any direction, but I've been looking forward to it all week. So thank you very much for having me on the show. Yeah, man, you got it. I'm really looking forward to it too. We kind of got hooked up as I was digging more into what we could call the history hoax and alternative timelines and just looking at how much of that could have been fabricated. And as I got to your site, I found that you get into quite a few other areas that maybe I'm not so into, and that's okay. But broadly speaking, I think we share a lot in common. People should re-examine everything we take for granted. We shouldn't build our worldviews on premises that are tied to deceptive organizations. And really, before people defend something they hold dear, they should know more about where it really comes from. And oftentimes, things are just beliefs instilled from the school system and reinforced by Hollywood. But I guess before we dive into the history hoax, which I think is the overarching thing here, I thought a good way to start would be for the unfamiliar listeners to maybe get a feel for your overall perspective by walking us up your hoax hierarchy a bit, if you'd be all right with it. Yeah, let's talk about the hoax hierarchy. This is something that seems to draw a lot of people to the YouTube channel and to the website. Basically, what I did was a couple of years ago, I sat down and I thought, if I was to go through the different things that I think are hoaxes, or that there may be some deception involved, are some of them maybe more significant than others? And so I started drawing up a schematic from the what I called the baby hoaxes right through to the granddaddy hoax. And the way that it worked out was it kind of was easiest to visualize as a triangle. So down the bottom, I've got a bunch of major media events that I believe are hoaxes. And I'm not sure how much your audience likes to discuss these things, but there are events such as, say, Sandy Hook or the Boston bombings, which if you look at some of the photo or video evidence from the events, they're highly suspicious. Mm -hmm. And that was actually how I got into conspiracy culture maybe four or five years ago. But subsequent to that, I've learned that these major media events, as significant as they are, they're actually not as significant as perhaps some of the other deceptions that I've learned about. And so what I did was I just drew up this schematic and I called it the hoax hierarchy. And my idea wasn't to convince people that what I think are the big hoaxes are more important than what I think are the less important hoaxes. It's more of a way to try to conceptualize what effect do some of these deceptions have on our minds and on our lifestyles? And so I'm happy to talk with you today about any of the hoaxes on that hoax hierarchy. And if you're interested to explain to you why I think some of those things are hoaxes, because a lot of them, they are controversial. To some people, some of the things that I'm saying are hoaxes, they're going to find that aggravating for me to sit here and say that, for example, history, parts of it may be a hoax. I do understand that that's going to come across as a little bit disconcerting to people, but hopefully they can give us a chance here today, Greg, and I can explain why every single one of those items on that hoax hierarchy is, in my opinion, a hoax. <laughs> For sure, man. And by the nature of it, I think most people would be on board with the bottom. And as we go up, we would probably lose some people along the way. That's just the nature of these types of rabbit holes. But we've been doing this a long, long time. And I think most people consider things like 9-11 
or the Boston bombing, Sandy Hook, Aurora, the whole Bin Laden thing, the Apollo missions, a lot of the things you have in the baby, toddler, and kitty levels, I'm pretty sure we've digested enough there to be on board with that. And if we were to get to maybe those middle levels, I mean, I don't even want to put out a specific thing. I guess what, what, when you get to those teeny and kitty levels, what do you think are the kind of the most polarizing things that you think you can make the best case for? All right, then. So let's talk about some of those teeny hoaxes. But before we do, just to make sure that people are on board with this, say at the baby hoax level, I've got Boston bombings and Sandy Hook and these kinds of things. And you might remember that a couple of years ago, there was the ISIS beheading serial show on TV. So what they were doing on the news was they were saying that ISIS, this boogeyman terrorist group, had captured these captives and they were going to behead them. And they even had each beheadee call out the next person who was going to be beheaded. So it was like a TV serial. I'm not sure if you remember this, but it was to me clearly almost like a comical, fictional boogeyman TV show. Hmm. But it wasn't portrayed as a fictional show. It was portrayed as real. And so I've got that down there at the baby hoax level as well. So I think that some of what we're shown on the news, it is clearly fabricated. Right. including a lot of what we're told about the terrorists and the boogeymen and that kind of thing. And then up from the baby hoax level, I've got the toddler hoaxes, and those are Osama bin Laden and the Apollo missions. And already here, we might lose some people. So look at Osama bin Laden. Regardless of what people think about what happened on 9-11, to me, Osama bin Laden, he is a fictional boogeyman. If you look at the footage of him, there's plenty of YouTube videos that people have recorded from CNN or from any uh, news agency, and they've re-uploaded them to YouTube. So we can see what was being shown about Osama bin Laden in the 1990s and the 2000s. And I look at this footage, and he too comes across as a fictional boogeyman. He comes across as the kind of character who would be in like a 1950s or a 1960s escapade, where the protagonist has to take down the boogeyman, that's how Osama bin Laden is shown to me. And so I tried to look further into the Osama bin Laden story, and I'm not convinced that this person was a real person. I think Osama bin Laden, regardless of what we think of 9-11, Osama bin Laden strikes me as he may have been a fictional boogeyman, Greg. And I know that will come across as controversial, but if we look at some of the texts that have been given to the masses that I think might be what you might call truth in plain sight. We know that, say, in 1984 by George Orwell, Goldstein is a fictional boogeyman and he's put on the telescreen and the masses are welcomed to have their two minutes of hate. You know, everybody hates Goldstein. They hate the boogeyman. Well, isn't that what Osama bin Laden was for us? He was the boogeyman on TV who we were encouraged to project our hatred onto, but we only ever see him on the telescreen. Our entire relationship with Osama bin Laden is via the mainstream media. None of us have ever met him. None of us will ever meet him. We're told now that he's dead. He is purely a representation on our television screens and in our newspapers. And then you've got the Apollo missions, which I would hope, Greg, I'm hoping that most of your listeners are familiar with the fact the obvious fact that that was an entirely fabricated event as well. I think so. Nobody went to the moon. 
1969 through 1972. And the footage that we were shown of people playing golf on the moon and driving dune buggies and even speaking with the president on the phone. Again, to me, this isn't just that we've been deceived, but the deception is comical. It's almost like a comic book style, a load of nonsense to me. So if we just stop at the toddler level there, Greg, would you say that most of your listeners would agree with at least the Apollo missions and hopefully the Osama bin Laden element as well, or at least be open-minded to the possibility that it wasn't that Osama bin Laden was framed. He was actually created for the purpose of framing. So far, would you say that this isn't too controversial just yet? Not at all. I think people are pretty on board, at least open to the possibility. On some of these things, for example, you move up a level, you got 9-11, no planes. We don't need to spend a ton of time on this. But I think that what's relevant is that it was a fabricated event. It was a false flag. The buildings were taken down. I think the buildings were built to be taken down as part of a ritual later. And that's a big thing. But I think sometimes the people who are woke, so to speak, end up devolving their arguments into, well, was it nanothermite? Was it a mini nuke? Were there planes there? Was it a direct energy weapon? You know, I have the place that I'd put my bet. But I think what's relevant is that it's not as projected and we've been lied to by the people that are our so-called protectors. I mean, after that, I really don't care what a person thinks necessarily. I'm just not hung up on that as long as they're on board with the fact that it was a fabrication. I mean, because that's really, to me, the thing that's hardest to accept, but perhaps not. But I guess just take us up the pyramid and give us some of the cliff notes up until like our main topic. Oh, good. Well, I'm so glad to hear you say that, that you think that the towers were built to be brought down. Because when I first heard that theory put forward, I thought, how could that possibly be? Why would they do such a thing? Why would they build these gigantic towers, two of them, in uh, the middle of New York and bring them down on TV? Why would they do such a thing? Whereas now it's quite obvious to me that those towers were, in fact, built to be brought down as part of a big ritual, as you describe it. So I'm glad we're on the same page on that one. So if we move up to the teeny hoax level, I've got five things listed there. And I would ask the listeners to at least hear us out before they get too frustrated by what I have to say. Let's just go through them and and see if maybe there's some good reason to think that maybe we've been deceived about some of these things. All right. On the teeny hoax level, I've got dinosaurs, atoms, war, evolution, and heliocentrism. And I am suggesting that each of those five things we may have been deceived about. (laughs) So you choose one of those five, Greg. You tell me which of those five you think your listeners would be most interested to hear more about. And let's go from there. (laughs) And this is the kind of the middle of the pyramid, folks. (laughs) Don't forget that. Um, I think evolution, people would be pretty on board with. There's major deceptions there. We've covered heliocentrism, I think, at nauseum. I'm kind of interested in why you put war on there. Okay, so you and I, we're roughly the same age. We're both in our 30s, right? Mm -hmm. So we've been raised to believe that about 100 years ago, there was a gigantic world war where millions of people died. And then a couple of decades after that, there was another world war where millions of people died. Millions of innocent people died, and that was what happened. You know, it was this horrible calamity. Now, I'm not saying that those events didn't happen, but what I am saying is that one day I decided to look into 
well, what is the evidence that all of these people died? You know, we're given these figures, these death counts of tens of millions of people, and maybe tens of millions of people did die. I'm not sure. I mean, it could be possible. But when I started looking into the evidence, what I found was that it was largely based on secondhand accounts. It was largely based on aggregate numbers that were given by official outlets. And in terms of sort of empirical evidence for these deaths, there's really not much that the average person can see to verify the claims that are being made. There are grave sites in various parts of Europe where you can still go and see, you know, where people have been buried as a result of dying in the war and what have you. So it seems to me as though people did die and there was a major event. But in terms of the numbers that we're given, we're given numbers of millions and millions and millions of people all around the world dying in this major calamity. And I wonder how much of that is legitimate. And if we fast forward through to today, people my age and people your age, well, we've been raised two generations or more after World War II. So unless we have a strong faith in history, we don't really have much reason to take anything that we're told on face value. It's either you have faith in what you're told or you don't. And I no longer have faith in what I'm told. So I've got the war hoax there, not because I'm saying that nothing has ever happened or nothing bad has ever happened. But once I started looking into it, I saw that there's not as much evidence for some of these claims as I thought there was. And then if we look at more recent wars, such as the Gulf War and what's been happening in the Middle East, I find a lot of that to be very dubious as well. And I can give you some examples. Sure. If you look at the bombing of Baghdad, there's still footage of it on YouTube to this day. You can see the footage that somebody has uploaded from the, the official news broadcasts of the time. I would encourage all of your listeners just to one day look up bombing of Baghdad, watch it for yourself. And just see if you notice anything about the footage. Because when I watch that footage, I think to myself, this does look, again, comical. This doesn't look like a real bombing at all. This kind of looks like a pyrotechnics display. It almost looks like a fireworks display that's being presented to us. And we're just supposed to accept that this is a real war and a real bombing. Now, if people still believe that Saddam Hussein was truly an enemy of the United States, I can completely understand why they would think that this was a real bombing. Oh, the Americans went into Iraq and they were bombing Saddam Hussein because they wanted to take him out. I can understand why people would believe that narrative. I used to believe that narrative. But as you progress through thinking about some of these topics and the process that I call deprogramming, you start to question, well, hold on, the people who run the show, do they really have enemies? Was Saddam Hussein really against the American establishment, or was he a puppet dictator who was put there? Because if he was a puppet dictator, then why would the US have any reason to bomb him to try and take him out? Wouldn't he be in on the whole thing? And then people try to tell me, oh no, Iraq really was against the Americans. They were really at war with each other. Iraq was a separatist state, and they wanted to start selling their oil in, in a different currency. They wanted to fight the petrodollar. And again, I used to believe all of that until I tried to look for actual evidence that this was the case, and I couldn't find any. And a country like Iraq, if you just look at it on a map, it's a fictional country from the outset. It was created after World War II. That's why they have these straight lines as their borders. It was created after the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, 
and the Ottoman Empire was broken up, we're told, by the establishment. So how could the establishment create countries like Iraq and then lose control of them? It doesn't make sense to me. So if this is the first time that someone's heard someone suggest these kinds of things, I completely understand, Greg, why they sound too out there. It must sound to people like I'm almost making this up for the sake of being like a shock jock or something. Mm-hmm. But all I'm trying to encourage people to do is to think about why do we believe what we're told? Take, for instance, World War One. Here in Australia, we, as children, we're encouraged once a year to buy these little red poppies and to wear them and have this minute of silence on Remembrance Day for all of these people who've died. So as little children who are, you know, children are very empathic and it's easy for their emotions to be manipulated. Well, these little children who've done nothing wrong to anyone in a ritual once per year, they're encouraged to wear these little red poppies and for a minute to stand in silence and to remember all of these dead people they've never met. Now, if you go to school for, say, 12 years, then that means that on at least 12 occasions, you've had to stand there in silence with all of the people around you. In You have to be solemn and you have to remember the deaths of people you've never met. And I'm suggesting to you, Greg, and I'm suggesting to all of your listeners, maybe that kind of conditioning on us during school has a far more profound effect than we realize. And maybe that's why when someone comes along and says, yeah, but what's the evidence that millions of people died? We have a natural aversion to what they're saying because we've had all of these conditioning, all of this emotional manipulation while we're growing up. We're so convinced there must have been these millions of people dead because we've already mourned for them. But in terms of actual evidence, no, we were never given any other than second and third hand accounts from the very authorities and establishment that at other times we say that we challenge them and we question them. But on these kinds of topics, we won't even open our minds to the possibility that maybe we have been deceived. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you make some good points, man. And I chose war out of that category just because I felt like I knew more or less what you would say about dinosaurs or atomic weapons or evolution or heliocentrism, just because those are kind of more defined arguments. And war is kind of a big thing. Also, most of history is based on war, and that's the overarching topic. And I don't want to be too argumentative. That's not my style. I do genuinely respect your thought process, call it skepticism or the trivium or a personal application of it. But to default to hoax on anything that you can't personally prove just seems too rigid or simplistic to me because there will be some things you can't prove that are conventional ideas. I mean, it's kind of ironic, but you realize there's a lot of people using your same type of logic to doubt the existence of Australia itself, right? You know, it's very interesting that you say that because in the preparation for this call, I went back and listened to some of your more recent podcasts. And I saw that when you were chatting with Gordon White, and that was a good call, by the way, I enjoyed that. You did mention that you were a little bit frustrated by conspiracy culture because lately people have been saying that the earth is flat or that Australia is a hoax. And I hadn't actually heard the Australia hoax one. That, that one's interesting. Obviously, I live here in Australia, so maybe I'm involved in some grand conspiracy mm-hmm. to deceive the world about Australia, but I think it's a real place. I'm here right now. So I don't believe in the Australia hoax. And as for flat earth, I can understand people's frustration with that as well because I have released 50 videos 
Okay, in the space of a couple of years, I released no less than 50 different YouTube videos debunking and critiquing the flat earth so-called theory. And it's not really a theory. It's more of a conjecture or a fantasy that a lot of these people have that the earth is flat. And unfortunately for me, a lot of people assumed that I was a flat earther because I used to host a show called the Ball Earth Skeptic Roundtable. And this was back in 2015, back when Flat Earth was just starting to become a thing on YouTube. So I interviewed some of the biggest names in Flat Earth. I interviewed Mark Sargent. I interviewed Eric Dubay, Jerenism, Wakey Wakey, a lot of the big names then, and some of them are still big names today. I interviewed them. And what happened was that because I would describe myself as a Ball Earth skeptic, and that was the name of the show, and I was interviewing all of these leading flat earthers, a lot of people assumed that I too was a flat earther. However, what I was doing was asking some of these guys questions about basic problems that I see with the flat earth belief system, such as there are two pole stars. Okay, There's a pole star in the north and there is a pole star here in the south. How can the flat earth belief system account for that? Or southern flights? you can fly from South Africa to Australia in a space of about nine hours. And I know that because I did that back in 2010 on the way home from the Soccer World Cup. So I would bring these problems up with these leading flat earthers and they would either try to avoid answering the question or they would outright deny what I was presenting as my evidence. So in the case of the Southern Flights, one of our guests live on the air, we used to broadcast live, I brought up this problem of the Southern Hemisphere flights, and he said to me that I can't have taken that flight because it doesn't exist. And I said, well, with the greatest of respect, I think the flight does exist because I've taken the flight. And he said, well, you must be mistaken. So then I went and got my itinerary, which I had saved from that trip. I went and got it from my little collection of things from the past. I came back. I sat down at the microphone. This is all live on the air. And I said, Here's my itinerary. I could be making this up, but let me tell you what I remember happening and what I've got documentation to show happened. And still, he didn't want to accept it. Now, I would have thought that because I was challenging some of these flat earthers in their claims, that people would be able to see that I was not a flat earther. And yet, to this day, I still have people trying to say that I promoted flat earth or that I am a flat earther, even though that's the complete opposite of what I was saying. So I can completely understand your frustration with this flat earth thing that has taken over conspiracy culture. I get it. At the same time, though, I think if we try to say that anyone who questions things like war or dinosaurs or even heliocentrism itself, if we say that any of those people who question these things are falling into the same trap as flat earthers, then that seems to me to be almost like a guilt by association or a throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I think if you do skepticism properly, if you have a proper methodological approach to the matter, well, you won't arrive at flat earth because the evidence goes against it. But you need to be willing to look at the evidence and you need to be willing to do the research. And so it was only through doing the research that I came to my current position, which is that the heliocentric model that we're given today I do think it is fanciful, but that doesn't mean that I accept flat earth and I consider myself to be one of the leading flat earth skeptics in the world today. 
So that's where I'm at with all of this, Greg. I, I'm a skeptical person. I take the time to look at the official stories for some of these things, and I'm not rejecting them out of hand. So if I say war hoax, I'm not saying that all war is a hoax. And you could say that maybe I shouldn't use the word hoax then. It's too strong a word. I completely understand that. But at the same time, we live in a world where people are convinced of the most ridiculous things because of their conditioning through school. So to counteract that, what do we say? Do we say, oh, I'm, I'm a war questioner or I'm a war skeptic or I think war might be a deception? Well, just using terms like war hoax, it just cuts right through that and it says, right, I am willing to say that I think we've been deceived about war right from the get-go. If people don't like the use of the word hoax, I understand that. Hopefully they can understand why I do that. War hoax, evolution hoax, heliocentrism hoax. It cuts right to the chase and it says, look, I'm willing to put my cards on the table here. I no longer believe what I used to believe. And the reason for this is because I've taken the time to look into the official story and I do not find it convincing. And that's fair to say. And I'm with you on the conventional model. There's a lot of things that don't add up when you start to pick at it. So we're probably on the same page there. And I'm glad you brought up that show with Gordon White because I've gotten a lot of feedback from all sides of the spectrum on how people feel about that and a lot of pushback. And I think maybe some of the points I made them casually and maybe made them too strong, but I think people misinterpreted what I was saying to a point, which was really that when I grew up in this culture, it was about trying to improve my own life, about avoiding debt traps and achieving economic fairness or escaping the cog in the wheel lifestyle, finding healthier options and creating solutions away from the weaponized food and water and now cell phones that we have to deal with, you know, things that can help us navigate to a better reality, even if it's just in our small circle. And I'm not sure these other topics like atomic weapons or dinosaurs or the flat earth, I'm not sure they do that. And I'm not saying questioning has no merit. Of course, I would never say that. But I just think it should be maybe measured and maybe it's gone a little bit off the rails and maybe people are obsessing over things they can't control at the expense of their own life and their own health and making themselves a better person. And it's not that all time is spent wisely either. So it's not even fair to say, you know, you should spend your time more wisely because of course we have a lot of time and it isn't all spent wisely. So that's of limited use to bring up, but that's kind of where I was coming from on a lot of that stuff. Craig, I completely understand what you're saying and I can relate to it and I can empathize with it. And you're correct, a lot of people, whether it is Flat Earth or it is Pizzagate or any of these sorts of things, a lot of people do let it take over, maybe not their lives, but their interest in the alternative. And so when I got into all of this, I was the same as you. I got into this thinking, well, I've been deceived about things. What else have I been deceived about? And there was a reason I wanted to do this, because I wanted to improve my life. If I have been deceived about something, I want to know what else I've been deceived about and hopefully improve my life as a result. And so in the last couple of years, for example, I've improved my diet significantly because I realized I had been deceived about nutrition and health. Right. And I've improved my exercise regime because I had been deceived about the ideal exercise regime. So now I sit here at the age of 31 and I'm in significantly better shape and significantly better health and better strength and 
fitness and flexibility than I was five or six years ago when I was in my mid-20s. And that's not because I was a couch potato in my mid-20s. I used to exercise then and I thought I was being healthy back then, but I had been deceived. And so by being willing to reconsider what I thought I know, I have been able to make positive changes in my life. And so I can completely empathize with people who say that this flat earth thing or the QAnon thing or the Pizzagate thing, it is distracting people. Because, yeah, how do these things improve your life? If you decide that the earth is flat, for argument's sake, putting aside whether or not you're correct about that, and of course I say that flat earthers are incorrect, but let's just say they were correct, for argument's sake, well then what? How does it improve your life to know that the earth is flat? In and of itself, I don't see how that does benefit you, other than it allows you now to feel as though you've got all of these friends. and so. What I noticed when I was studying the flat earth phenomenon through 2015, 2016, 2017, a lot of people, they do come to identify with the conspiracy or with the alternative theories that they have adopted. And now because of Google Hangouts and how easy it is to communicate with people all around the world, they form their own online enclaves. And it almost becomes, I don't want to use the word like a cult, but it almost becomes people, they find this new group identity. And then anyone who challenges that, they see those people as like an outsider and a blasphemer. And so in all the time that I've been doing this, and I cover so many different topics, and a lot of my perspectives are controversial, in all of my time doing this, there's only been two occasions where myself or a family member or a friend has been Facebook stalked and had their personal details shared by somebody who was uh, angry at me for my work. And on both occasions, it was flat earthers who did that. A flat earther Facebook stalked a family member of mine, and they shared their details publicly. And a different flat earther Facebook stalked a friend of mine, and same thing, released his details publicly, accused him of being a deceiver. I mean, this is pretty full-on stuff, when ultimately all I'm doing is saying to people, here's my research, here's my reasoning, here's my questions, let's have a chat about this. For people to go to those kinds of links, it shows that this is more than just an exploration for them. This is more than just questioning what they think they know or questioning how they've been deceived. This has become something of an identity for them. And that's not what I got into this for, Greg. I never got into this to take up a new identity as a believer of this thing or as a promoter of that thing, I just got here to find out, well, how have I been deceived and how can I improve my life? And so when I was listening to your chat with Gordon, I thought, I can relate to this, Greg. Even if you're saying that the dinosaur hoax is a distraction, whereas I think it's actually a very important topic that is worthy of our time, I did get where you were coming from because who wants to tell their friends and family now that they're into alternative theories if the first thing that you're going to be told in response is, oh, then you must be a flat earther, right? It's, I can completely understand that frustration. My hope is that by the end of this call, you and your listeners will understand I'm not feeding into that. I'm doing the opposite. I do consider myself to be the world's leading flat earth skeptic. So the same skeptical approach that I take to dinosaurs or to history, I take that to flat earth as well. And one of the reasons why you won't see so many flat earth skeptic videos on my YouTube channel is that once I'd released 50 of these videos, 
I thought to myself, I've done enough of this now. Every time I release a Flat Earth skeptic video, every time I release a video saying, here is the argument of the Flat Earthers, here is the empirical evidence that contradicts it, here is how they are wrong, every time I did that, it felt like all I was doing was giving Flat Earth more attention. It actually felt like I was feeding the beast. So after my 50th, my 50th Flat Earth skeptic video, I said, that's it, I'm finished with this. I recorded a two-hour show where I just reviewed all of those videos and I left that video up on my website and I actually set almost all of the other videos to unlisted on my YouTube channel just to disassociate myself from Flat Earth because I realize now that even by questioning Flat Earth, in some ways, all you're doing is helping them. So uh, I guess the point I'm trying to make here, Greg, is that I feel like I can empathize with your frustration, but at the same time, I just don't feel like the work that I'm doing I don't feel like I'm part of the problem. I actually kind of feel like my approach is part of the solution. Fair enough. I mean, hey, I agree to some extent or you wouldn't be here. So I think that's really well said. And I really kind of want to get into the meat of things because, man, time is just going by so quickly and I am enjoying this. But history is clearly a big topic. The existence of dinosaurs would fall into history. Our concepts of human development, hunter-gatherer societies... Ancient Egypt, Greece and Rome, megalithic structures, indigenous cultures. I mean, it is a huge body of material that you're casting doubt on. Really, the whole human story as it's generally accepted. How do we introduce people to something like this? How do you tend to lay a base for the history hoax itself? Excellent question. So one of the things that I like to do is to read out a quote from George Orwell, because most people will tell you that they're familiar with the story of 1984 by George Orwell. So here's a quick quote from that book. If all others accepted the lie which the party imposed, if all records told the same tale, then the lie passed into history and became truth. Who controls the past, ran the party slogan, controls the future. Who controls the present, controls the past. And again, that's from 1984 by George Orwell. When you were going through school, Greg, did you find it strange how often the textbooks would change? Did you ever find that interesting how every few years, the textbooks for a particular class, you would have to go and buy a new textbook? You couldn't use one from 10 years ago that was out of date. Did you ever notice that? Yeah, I mean, in grade school, I think it's a little bit different here, but I know what you're saying. Yeah, they definitely change all the time. Yeah, well, maybe it is different in your part of the world, but here in Australia, it was often the case that a child couldn't use the textbooks from his older brother because by the time he got to the same class, the books had changed. Now, there is a commercial, I guess, incentive behind this. If you constantly change the textbooks and the parents have to keep rebuying new textbooks, then it means more money for the publishers of the books and these kinds of things. So there is a commercial element to it. What I'm getting at, though, is if the textbooks are constantly changing, then every new cohort of children is getting a new version of history. And most parents today do not have a very hands-on approach to their children's education. They send their children off to school and they trust that the children will be taught the truth. They'll be taught what they need to know. And so what I'm suggesting is that it's actually very easy for what we think is history to change on a regular basis even through school. And then if you pay attention to the news, you'll notice that every now and then there'll be a news story about 
all the experts have found this new piece of archaeological evidence that suggests that the timeline goes back even further than we thought. So to use one example, when I was in school as a child, and I'm only 30 years old, by the way, Greg, I turned 31 this month, we were told that the indigenous Australians, the natives who were here before colonialism, that they had been here for about 20,000 years. That was a story that we were told at school. I've spoken with my friends and I've spoken with other people who are my age who went to different schools to me, and that's how they remember it as well, anywhere from 20 to 40,000 years. Well, just last year, there was a new story saying that there was new archaeological evidence that puts the timeline back to maybe 75,000 years. And in the interim, in the 20 years between my school and this new story, there were several other news stories on an intermittent fashion. And each one of them put back the history another few thousand years. So we're at the stage now where someone my age, 30 years old, who remembers being taught that the indigenous had been here for 20,000 years, that history has now been pushed back to 70,000 years according to the experts, as their stories are told through the mainstream media. So right from the outset, I find myself wondering if history can change that much in the space of 20 years, or how much has history changed before my time? If I was being educated in the 1990s, how different was our history from what was being taught in, say, the 1950s or the 1960s or the 1970s? And who would even know? Who is taking the time to say, guys, look how fast history has changed here. Maybe this is a pattern. Maybe this has been happening for some time. So what this has led me to do is to go and look into some of these things, some of these stories that we're told about history. And in particular, I've been looking at ancient Greece, ancient Rome, and ancient Egypt. And what I have discovered, Greg, has shaken me to the core <laughs> of my miserable soul. I have discovered that it turns out that things like Egyptology didn't even exist more than 130 years ago. Egyptology itself, the study of what we call ancient Egypt, is only 130 or 140 years old. Now, on its own, that might not sound so controversial, but if we look at where these people get their views from, what is their evidence? What are their primary sources for the claims that they give us about ancient Egypt? What I have discovered has led me to the inference that this is all a relatively recent fabrication. Now, before I go further, Greg, can I ask you, if I say to you, ancient Egypt, what do you imagine in your mind? Okay, <laughs> if, if I say to you those two key terms, ancient Egypt, what kind of images come to mind? What does your mind associate with the term ancient Egypt? <laughs> I generally think of people who had a pretty evolved spirituality, pharaohs, mystery schools, and of course the images we get from Hollywood and artist depictions make it seem like a desert oasis with gold and jewels everywhere, that sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly. The same with me. If someone says to me, ancient Egypt, I'm thinking about pyramids, I'm thinking about people doing funny little dances with their hands up to the front and back to the side, and I'm thinking of lots of sand. I'm thinking of maybe slaves, or were they workers? Who built the pyramids? Were they slaves, or were they paid to be there? Well, whoever they were, they must have worked very hard to move all of those stones into place. These are the kinds of things that I'm thinking about. 
and I'm thinking about it all happening thousands of years ago. So let's explore where do we get the idea that ancient Egypt is thousands of years old? Where does that idea come from? Have we taken the time to study the sources for these claims? Or have these ideas been put there by school and by television and even to an extent by conspiracy culture? Well, let's fast forward a little while through my research, through the things that I've discovered. What if I were to tell you, Greg, that according to the official historians, if you trace their sources, that is, you open up a history book and it says that, say, a particular pharaoh from ancient Egypt is from 4,000 years ago, for argument's sake, and you decide, I'm going to look into the evidence for that claim. How do they know what he said? How do they know that he was there 4,000 years ago? What's their evidence? So you go to the back of the history book, you go to the reference section, and you find their sources. Then you go and look up those sources. Right, what's your evidence that this is what happened thousands of years ago? And you continue this process, just tracing through the sources to the actual evidence. Not the story of what happened, but the evidence on which that story is based. What if I told you that if you do that, the evidence goes back to a thing called the Oxyrhynchus papyri from the late 1800s that were discovered by two Oxford scholars in what they claim to have been an ancient Egyptian rubbish dump. That is, that their sources for a lot of the stories that we're told about ancient Egypt and even ancient Greece, these primary sources, the sources that supposedly come from the time of ancient Egypt and of ancient Greece, those sources are claimed to have been discovered by two Oxford scholars named Grenfell and Hunt in the late 1800s in what they claim to have been an ancient Egyptian rubbish dump. Does that sound like it is even possible that that could be the case? Or does it sound like I must be making this up? <laughs> well, from going over your work already, I'm familiar with that argument. And I guess it's suspect, but I wonder, and I'm not an expert, but there's more documents than just this particular papyri that our concepts of ancient Egypt are based on. I mean, we can see the pyramids, so they're there, and they look like they're somewhat old. I don't know how to really date erosion, but they also had a language that is no longer in use. And I feel like there's some depth there to just create or fabricate out of thin air. No? Well, that's exactly right. So when you first present to people this idea that if you trace the sources, so you've got official historians who have their stories about what happened in the past, if you trace their sources back to the primary source, that oftentimes it goes back to a rubbish dump from the late 1800s discovered by two Oxford scholars, the first response I think will naturally be no, 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 there must be other documents. There must be. <laughs> and so let's explore that further. We assume there must be more documents because why? Because we've been told all of these stories throughout our life. We've seen them on TV. We went to school. We were given all of these stories about the past. We assume there must be more evidence. There must be more documentation. So if somebody comes along and they say to us, yeah, that's what I thought. I thought there must be more evidence. <laughs> so I spent hours and hours and hours searching for it. And I couldn't find any every single time the primary sources trace back to relatively recent so-called discoveries. Our natural inclination is to say to that person, no, you must be missing something. There must be more evidence that you've missed. 
what our natural inclination isn't to do is to say, I'm going to disprove him. I'm going to get a history textbook. I'm going to check their references. I am going to trace the sources myself, and I'm going to discover sources that are much older than he's claiming there are. Our natural inclination is not to scrutinize history. It is to take the stories that we're told on face value, which is one of the reasons why I don't blame anyone if after hearing me suggest that a lot of these stories go back to a rubbish dump from the late 1800s. I don't blame them if they think that I'm making that up or if they think that I'm exaggerating or embellishing. I don't blame them at all. But what I hope some people will do, and this is why it's terrific that you've got such a wide audience, Greg, surely some people in your audience are going to say, this John Le Bon guy, he must be exaggerating. I'm going to disprove him by getting a history textbook, by tracing through the sources, right back to the primary source, and I'm going to prove that we have evidence that is older than 100 or 200 years. I'm going to prove it. I'm going to disprove JLB. I'm hoping some of your listeners will do that. But I can tell you exactly what's going to happen if they try. They will arrive at the same conclusion as me. History as we know it is all a sham. It's all a sham. As ridiculous as that sounds, as crazy as that sounds, as completely bonkers as that sounds, if you take the time to trace the sources, this is the logical inference that you will draw. It is all a sham. Ancient Egypt, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, all of the stories in our heads, complete nonsense. And the fact that so few of us will ever take the time to check is a reason as to why this is so easy to pull off. If you can convince the masses of all of these stories and none of them take the time to check the sources, then just imagine how easy it would be to deceive the whole lot of them. Hmm. I mean, you're absolutely right, and it is a fair point that it is up to me to present you with counter evidence, and I don't have any ancient Egyptian papyri in which to do that with. I do assume that there are a lot of tablets and tombs and cartouches that do have hieroglyphs on them. I have seen some. I've been to the British Museum. I've been to several museums that have things that they claim are from ancient Egypt, but I really can't prove that they are or aren't. But I guess to play devil's advocate, the printing press, we're told, came along in the 1400s, and I could see that being the internet of its day because information can finally be distributed with ease because before that, everything is handwritten and not really built to last. So these chroniclers, as a method of preservation, had to rewrite these crumbling scrolls and papyri, and sometimes you just won't get your hands on a primary source. These things fall apart with time, I would think. I mean, I can see how you'd be skeptical of all that. It's also a lot of trust to put in people of the ancient past to think that they did an honest job of copying something, but it's just kind of all we have. I mean, is that not a reasonable explanation for why we don't have more primary sources that the technology wasn't there and people really aren't that concerned with how things are going to be viewed a thousand years past their own life? You know, they're only concerned with their small sliver of time. And this might just be an unfortunate aspect of our progression as a species. Yeah, well, there's a couple of things there. Firstly, I don't actually think it is your job to present me with evidence. I think if you're comfortable with your beliefs, then you don't have to go out of your way to prove them to me. So if I'm saying that I used to completely believe in ancient Egypt, and when I was a child, I loved the TV show Stargate. Do you remember Stargate SG-1 and the original film Stargate with Kurt Russell? 
I used to love those. And they're largely based on the stories that we have about ancient Egypt. Obviously, those are a fictionalized TV show, but a lot of the narrative of those shows is based on this idea that there was an ancient Egypt, the same way that we're told by history and school and TV, right? And I used to love that stuff. So I used to completely believe in ancient Egypt, and now I don't because I've taken the time to trace through the sources. But that doesn't mean that it's your job or anyone else's job to prove to me that ancient Egypt is real. If you're comfortable with your beliefs, then I say that's totally cool. The problem for me is that I got onto this path when I first realized how easily I had been deceived. I thought, I have to get into the habit now of not basing my evidence on my beliefs, but basing my beliefs on evidence. And that means I have to go and search for evidence. And so with things like ancient history, well, when I was in school, I was given the stories and I was told to memorize the stories, but we weren't actually given the evidence. We were just given the stories. And the stories in and of themselves are not evidence. Just because hundreds or thousands of people repeat the same story, that doesn't make it evidence. What I need to do is try and find the evidence, which is why I found myself trying to trace back through the sources. Here's a history book. Here's what they claim. Let's go to the references. Let's go and get that book. And that's why I arrived at this position now where I say there are no primary sources. This is all make-believe. But that's just my interpretation now, having tried to find the evidence and seeing that there was none, that it was a complete sham. This is the interpretation I've come to. But that was just because that was a skeptical path that I was on and that I am on. But this isn't necessarily the path for everyone, because as humans, we have to find meaning in the world. And sometimes these stories about ancient Egypt or ancient Rome or ancient Greece, sometimes these stories can give us a sense of meaning. And so who am I to come along and say, I've looked for the evidence and I find it completely unconvincing now that I've looked for it and seen what the actual evidence is. It's a joke. Who am I to say, oh, now you have to also let go of your beliefs in ancient history? No, no, not at all. People can believe whatever they want. And this is why my website and my YouTube channel, they will always be niche within the broader conspiracy culture realm or within the broader alternative realm. Because what I'm doing is I'm saying, look at all these stories that we have. A lot of them are based on zero evidence or very uncompelling evidence. So let's stop believing in those stories. But that's almost antithetical to the usual human condition, which is to believe in stories, which is to take stories on face value, to assume that the experts have evidence. I've never seen the evidence, but there's lots of experts, so I'm sure they've got the evidence. That's the natural human condition, and it helps give people meaning in their life. And I'm not trying to take that away. When I was a little bit younger and a little bit more naive, I was on that kind of crusade. I was thinking, no, everybody should base all of their opinions on evidence that they have checked for themselves. Nobody should take silly stories on face value. I got a little bit self-righteous a year or two ago, but with the benefit of hindsight and with experience, I can see now that a lot of these stories do give people meaning, and ultimately, all any of us want to do is be happy. And so I'm happier being a skeptic and looking for the evidence and tracing back through the sources. I'm happier doing that, but I'm unusual in that sense. So I'm not saying that it's your job to find the evidence to convince me, Greg. What I am saying, though, is that if people want to say that their opinions are based on evidence, then it is incumbent on them to check for the evidence, to check the sources. So really, people have to make a decision. 
Are they going to base their opinions on evidence? Are they going to spend the time scrutinizing the sources? Or would they rather continue to believe what they believe? And I think both choices are perfectly reasonable, but they are different choices. There is a distinction between someone who will take the time to search for the sources and someone who will take the stories on face value. There is a difference. There is a significant difference between the two. There is. It is a distinction worth mentioning. But that simple question still remains of, doesn't the unfortunate reality of technological progression have to be folded into the analysis? Isn't it kind of disingenuous not to? Well, I'm glad you bring that up because for me, this is a very exciting time to be alive because of what technology offers us. For example, when I went and looked into this story of Herodotus, Herodotus is this important figure of ancient history because according to historians today, Herodotus was the first historian. He's considered to be the father of history. He was the first man to accumulate information about what had happened before his time and write it down so that future people could know about his time and before his time. He's considered to be the father of history. Now, 50 years ago, if I wanted to look into the story of Herodotus as somebody living in Brisbane, I would have been in a lot of trouble. I would have had to have jumped on a boat and gone over to England and gone through the Oxford libraries or the Cambridge libraries to trace through the sources. And of course, that'd be too much trouble. So instead, I would just rely on my third-hand evidence, on my tertiary evidence, the tertiary sources, such as encyclopedias or these kinds of things. And I would have to take their interpretation or their account of the primary sources on face value. Well, now in 2018, thanks to things like the Internet Archive, a lot of the books that go back 100, 200 years ago on which modern textbooks are often claiming are their sources, those have been uploaded now as PDFs for anyone to check for themselves. So when I was searching through the sources for Herodotus, I was able to discover, oh, okay, modern books are all citing this author from 1950. Let me go and find his book. Ah, I see. In his book, he cites as his evidence a writer from 1900, for instance. Okay, let me go and find a copy of his book. Within a few minutes, I had a PDF copy of his book. So I was able to read that book, find out what he was claiming. What is he claiming is his sources. And so I was able to go through this process of just tracing back through the sources. Yes, it still takes a lot of time to read all of these books, but I have instant access to them. And so in the space of a day or two days or three days or however long it takes me to read all of these books and find out all of their sources, I'm able to arrive at the start, the start of the story. Who was the first person who claimed that Herodotus said or did what Herodotus is claimed to have said or done? And so with technology now, anybody who wants to take a skeptical approach to history can do so from the comfort of their local cafe or from the comfort of their own home. They can access books that are stored in libraries in, say, London or in, say, the north east of America in one of your prestigious universities, we can now access all of those in PDF form, in digital form, instantly, which means that now for the first time in recorded human history, anybody can check the validity of these stories. And I kind of feel like I'm one of the first people to do this. So even though I completely understand that 90 or 95% of the people who ever hear this podcast will just assume that I'm crazy or just assume that I'm making things up for dramatic effect or whatever. 
there will be a small percentage of people who will say, I'll give this a try. I will go to Internet Archive and I will see if I can trace back the sources for myself. And when they do that, they will arrive at the exact same conclusion as me, which is that this is all a sham. But this is not something that people even 20 years ago really had access to. I mean, the Internet Archive, for instance, was only created in 1996, I think, by a fellow called Bruce DeKale. So a person in my situation, say in the 1980s, if there was someone living in Brisbane or living in your part of the world who was skeptical about the stories of history, he would have to travel to libraries in person to check what was in those books. So the process that I'm going through now, this skeptical approach to history, it wasn't even possible a few decades ago. It is possible now, and I think slowly but surely, more people are going to try this, if for no other reason than to debunk me. If they say, I'm going to do this to debunk JLB, great, fantastic, because they're still going to arrive at the same conclusion. It's not like I just did this once and said, aha, history is fake. I've done this with so many different characters of ancient history that I've now come to the inference. It's not just Herodotus, and it's not just Plato, and it's not just Caesar, and it's not just Tutankhamun. Every single time I trace through the sources, I arrive at a brick wall. I arrive at a wireframe mesh. I arrive at a source from a couple hundred years ago who himself cites no other sources. This is all a fabrication. <laughs> Provocative, man. And I, I do like your confidence. And I wanted to talk to you about history as a discipline a little bit in our top universities. So let's get into Oxford and Cambridge a bit. From your own site, you write, I began by going straight to the top, Oxford University, according to its about page. As the oldest university in the English-speaking world, Oxford is a unique and historic institution. There is no clear date for its founding, but teaching existed at Oxford in some form in the year 1096 and developed rapidly from 1167 when Henry II banned English students from attending the University of Paris. And then you say, that is one old university, well over 800 years old, they claim. Somehow they don't actually know when they themselves were founded, which ought to raise some red flags. And to loop in Cambridge here, you say Oxford created their history professorship in 1724. Cambridge also created a modern history professorship in 1724. Britain's two oldest and most prestigious universities both established their professorships in modern history in the very same year, less than 300 years ago. What a coincidence. And... I will admit, that is pretty interesting, right? Yeah, so in that piece, and I should explain to the listeners, I've now got seven pieces on my website, seven articles that I've written on what I call the history hoax, and they follow a logical structure. So I start off with my history hoax, a primer, and then the next article is the history of history, and the second history in that title has inverted commas, because we think of history as being this distinct academic discipline, which must have been going on since humans first learned to write. However, if we look into the academic discipline of history, it turns out that they fully admit that this is not the case at all. And even I was surprised when I first found out that the American Historical Association, the AHA, they themselves fully admit that history as an academic discipline only began in the late 1800s. And so when I read that on their website, I thought, that can't be the case. History as a discipline must go back further than that because supposedly 
the universities do. So I went to the university's own websites and to the history faculty uh, sub-websites of these universities. And what I discovered was exactly what you just said. Both Oxford and Cambridge say that their first professor in history didn't come along until 1724, the exact same year. So independent of each other, both Oxford and Cambridge claim that their first professor of history, he became a professor in 1724. And both of them also say that they didn't start taking undergraduate classes or they didn't start allowing undergraduate examinations in history until another 150 years after that. So the modern academic discipline of history that many of us might assume goes back hundreds or thousands of years. No, it doesn't. The academic discipline of history, as we know it today, is itself a relatively new creation compared to what we think is human history, which in and of itself is not necessarily incriminating, but it got me looking further again. And then I found out that Oxford can't even tell us when they themselves began as a university. So the institutions, the establishment institutions who are trusted to tell us what was happening thousands of years ago, they can't even tell us when they themselves first began as a university. Now, again, none of this proves that history is a hoax on its own. I'm not claiming that it does. But these are the kinds of things that when I found them out, led me to go and search into things further. Well, I think there are good points there. And I know that this is just a building block and it does have some surprising differences from many assumptions people probably have out there. But it's kind of steeped in the English-speaking world when, at least on your site, you're talking about the American Historical Association, these major universities like Oxford and Cambridge. But as big as it might seem now, that's kind of a small sliver of humanity. English was only developed in 1066. How far back would this kind of discipline go? I mean, what about Latin, Chinese, Hebrew, Sanskrit? Are these not part of the human story? Do you think these are recent inventions that were then backcasted? Well, that's a good question. Where does our language come from? Where does English come from and how old are these languages? And when I looked into that question, what I found out was that the way that they try to tell us how old languages are, it often involves things like simple diagrams showing that this word in this language sounds similar to this other word in this other language and this other word in this other language. And then they draw little arrows between them and they say that the experts infer that this word must have led to that word and so on and so forth. And that's how we arrived at what we believe are the histories of these languages. Now, I completely understand how difficult it must be to untangle this, to untangle how old are the languages. That's kind of the point of what I'm making here is when we actually think about how difficult it must be to determine where our languages came from, why would we then be so quick to just take on face value whatever is the current official story about these things? So I don't know how old the English language is. I don't know how old Latin is or Hebrew or these kinds of things. What I can tell you, though, is bringing it back to the history hoax element, once upon a time, so goes the story according to Cambridge and Oxford and these kinds of places. Once upon a time, when you were being taught history, you had to know how to speak Greek. You had to know how to speak Latin. That was part of your training in the classical studies. These days, you can graduate with a three-year history degree without having to know a single language other than English. 
And to me, that ought to raise a red flag for people because what that means is that if people like Herodotus or people like Tutankhamun or people like Caesar or any of these characters of history, if they or their contemporaries were writing in their own language, then there's no way that we could read it for ourselves. We would have to read, at the very best, a translation in English. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't know what those people were saying. But if we're only reading English, and those people supposedly wrote in other languages, then we ought to be skeptical or critical of, well, where does that translation come from? Who performed the translation? Why would I take this translation on phase value? And what I'm suggesting is that if we go through that process, if we say, right, what is considered today to be the best translation of their works? Let's go and find a copy of that book. Once we find that book, let's find out where does that author claim that they got their original Herodotus from or their original Caesar or their original Tutankhamun or any of these characters of history? What is their translation based on? Where is the original? And what I discovered when I went through this process is that in many cases, there is no original. So let's use one example, Herodotus. If you look up the story of Herodotus today, you'll be told that we know what Herodotus was saying and we know what Herodotus was documenting. Okay, great. What is this story based on? We'll find out that the official story says that we've got books from 1850. There's a guy in 1850 who wrote a terrific translation of Herodotus's work. Fantastic. Let's get a copy of that book, which we can do now, thanks to the Internet Archive. Let's find that book and read that and find where does that guy say he got his original Herodotus. If we follow this process, at the end of that line, you'll find people writing books maybe 200 years ago, but they give no source whatsoever for what they're saying Herodotus wrote. Nothing. Nothing at all. I know how outrageous that sounds, but that's what I have discovered by tracing through the sources. That's where I'm at right now. So you make a good point about English and Hebrew and Latin and these kinds of things. If someone says to me, hey, I've got a copy of what Herodotus wrote, and it is in his native language, here you go. Great. I would love to see that. But from the research that I've done, there is no such thing. The closest that we have are the Oxyrhynchus papyri, which, as I said earlier, were discovered in Egypt in the late 1800s by a couple of fellows from Oxford, which they claim to have been written by the original authors. But they say it was found in a rubbish dump, basically in an empty area of Egypt. Okay, so the closest that we have to primary sources were discovered 120 years ago in a rubbish dump by two Oxford scholars. In the meantime, all the stories we've got about Herodotus, they lead us to believe, oh, these translations must be based on the original. But if we look through the sources of the translations, they don't tell us what they were translating from. I mean, this is a big deal, Greg. How do I put this? Hopefully you and your audience can see why I think this is a big deal. This is not a distraction. This is not some kind of put-on that I'm doing. To me, this is a big deal. If we have been deceived about what we think we know about ancient history, that is a huge deal. And it's instructive of the modern human condition that so many of us can spend so many years believing these stories without spending so much as a single afternoon checking the sources for those stories. Fair. And I do agree that this is a big deal. I mean, that's why of the topics on the table, I wanted to focus on this because history, of course, is 
relevant to our lives. And I also, of course, think there are major deceptions in history. I think our only disagreement is scale. And if we were to talk about ancient Egypt a bit more, as an example, like I look at the work of John Anthony West or Robert Schock, right? I mean, they're famous for questioning the official narrative of Egypt by pushing it back much farther and making a case that it was much more complex and exceptionally advanced in their cosmology and spiritual understandings than it's typically presented. And it was Robert Schock who really had no dog in the fight. He's an expert on weathering. And he looked at the Sphinx and said, this damage on it is clearly water erosion. So then you take the date back to when there was rain in the Egyptian desert, again, an assumption, and that puts the Sphinx way back even before conventional history. Those are kind of the ways I think the lies have been told and where the truth might lie. But I guess you think guys like this are either part of the deception or working on faulty premises themselves? Well, I don't want to speak about John Anthony West or Robert Schock specifically. I don't want to criticize or critique their claims because I haven't engaged with their work directly. Fair. What I would ask you, though, Greg, is if you found their work convincing, can you recall any of the primary sources that they might have had to put forward about the ancient characters of history? Or was their work specifically about the erosion of the objects that we call the pyramids and the Sphinx? What were their claims based on? Right. And that's why I chose this as an example, because it is just about the Sphinx. It's about the enclosure of the Sphinx and the markings that are on it. Because I guess the assumption is the Western world stumbled upon this shit and they're like, what is this? How far back does it go? And conventional Egyptology puts this stuff around 5,000 years old. Robert Schock looked at it as a weather damage expert and said, actually, this is water erosion, which it doesn't rain in Egypt like you'd think it does. You know, it's, I mean, it's the desert. It doesn't rain like that now. So for this damage to have occurred, there's an assumption that there was actually a river there, that the Sphinx was near it, and that it was once lush. And so you have to take that back to something like 12,000 years to get it into the right place in which rain would be falling there. And so, of course, I'm, you know, a lot of assumptions here, but the point is that there are markings on the Sphinx that got there somehow. One expert who's an alternative guy who the mainstream has tried to shut down quite a bit, and I know they round... They run counter narratives too. I wouldn't dismiss that. But he says this damage is done by water erosion. You move it back in history. Some people would say it aligns with the constellation Leo that it originally had a lion's head. And some of these pieces start to come together in an alternative way that mainstream Egyptology dismisses. So they're fighting that narrative. Again, could be a counter narrative. But that's why I chose the example of the Sphinx's erosion because it's kind of simple. It doesn't really require the tracing back of documents and scrolls that might have disintegrated over time or something like that. Yeah, I completely understand. It's a good example too, because a lot of what I'm talking about has to do with the sources in the terms of a literal sense, like what is the literary evidence for what we think we know about history. So those things can be easily fabricated and a person can claim that a piece of papyri is 2000 years old, when really it might be significantly less than that. Whereas some of these physical relics, such as the Sphinx or the Pyramid, well, how can you fake how old they are? And that is a terrific question. I guess my point would be, what is our control? If you think about 
your typical way of trying to measure something. Oftentimes, it's useful to have a control element. Now, in the case of the Sphinx, you and I don't have a 2,000-year lifespan to build a Sphinx and then see how much does it erode in 10 years or in 100 years or in 2,000 years, right? We don't have a way to test to see how quickly something like that would erode. So if someone tells us that the erosion that has happened to it is the result of 100 years or 500 years or 2,000 years or maybe 10,000 years, what do we compare that to? What can you or I compare that to? We can either take what they're saying on faith or we can say, well, this guy can't convince me because how long has he been observing the erosion? I mean, if he was to observe the erosion for 10 years and notice, for argument's sake, X millimeters of erosion at this particular point in the object in 10 years, then you could see how they can draw an inference. They can extrapolate from that. Well, here's how far back we think the erosion goes. Now, again, I haven't dealt with John Anthony West or Robert Schock's uh, material, so I don't know what their method was for telling us what the erosion reveals about the age of the objects. Can you remember, Greg, when you were reading their work or when you were interacting with their work, like, did they present a method of that nature? Like, how did they arrive at thousands of years? What was the method that they were employing? Well, I think it just relies on his general opinion as a weathering expert. It doesn't rely on any dating except the presumptions about climate in previous ages, I think. Again, big assumptions. But I always found that alternative theory interesting. And then it gets into the size of the head being too small. And if you take it back to that time, it would have better aligned with the constellation Leo, and that would have made more sense. I know that makes some assumptions about the night sky too, but I see a couple pieces coming together in a way that makes sense and is very different from the mainstream. But regardless of that, you have used this term wireframe mesh a couple of times, and I know what you're talking about because I've seen these pictures online that look like black and white photos of people building the Sphinx or a crane lifting Stonehenge into place. And in the same way, you can't trust the chain of custody with some of these documents or the universities that study this stuff. I can't trust images like that in the Photoshop age, even though they are interesting. Maybe these images I'm talking about align with your view, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. So I guess I would just straight up ask you, do you think... The megalithic sites of the world are just recent inventions that we're being lied to about? Well, I'm definitely open-minded to that possibility. So if you look at the Sphinx, for an example, so if you ask official history, well, what do we know about the Sphinx? They'll tell you that the first archaeological dig of the Sphinx took place in the early 1800s. So we're talking about 200 years ago. They'll tell you that it was a character named Giovanni Battista Caviglia, who conducted the first archaeological dig that uncovered the Sphinx as we know it today, 200 years ago. So I would think, is it possible that this Sphinx is thousands of years old and it just went unknown, buried for thousands of years before it was discovered? I would say, yes, that is possible. Why not? Is it also possible that a couple hundred years ago, there were some people who either played an elaborate prank or performed some kind of elaborate hoax for their own ends, whether to deceive people or to make money for a tourist venture or whatever the case might be, is it possible that 200 years ago they carved something out of stone themselves and told the world that it was thousands of years old? Is that possible? And I would say, yes, of course that's possible. So we've got a few different possibilities here. 
Now, at that point, the average person feels too busy or they don't feel that they've got the technical expertise to look into the matter for themselves. They're going to want an authority figure to give them a narrative about the Sphinx. So there will be some people who will say, well, the official experts say that it's X number of thousand years old. That's what I'm going to go with. There'll be other people who will say, no, no, there's these alternative researchers who claim that it goes back even further than that, maybe 10,000 years old or 15,000 years old. That's the narrative that I'm going to go with. Then, perhaps sadly, there are some people on YouTube who will say, no, no, my favorite flat earther says that the Sphinx was built by hand 200 years ago. I'm going to go with that. Right. Not because they've done their own research, but because that fits in with their narrative. So. People are naturally going to follow whichever explanation for this relic of history. They're going to follow whichever one fits in with their preconceived notions the most. And going back to what I was saying earlier, I don't have a problem with that. If someone says to me that they want to believe or they would prefer to believe or that it just feels right for them that the Sphinx is 10,000 years old or 5,000 years old or whatever the case might be, I'm totally cool with that. But for me, all I can go with is the evidence. And the only evidence I've got is that this thing exists. It was discovered 200 years ago, even according to the mainstream account. That's when it was discovered 200 years ago. And knowing what I know about how some humans love deceiving others, <laughs> they love to pull off hoaxes. They love to pretend that they've got this pilt down man that proves evolution or whatever the case might be. Knowing what I know about humans, how much some of them love to deceive others and how easily the rest of them are deceived. I can't help but infer that maybe, maybe the Sphinx was created a couple hundred years ago, but I don't know. I'm not saying that this is the case. I'm saying that I don't know, but I'm not going to believe that it's thousands of years old just because that fits in with other beliefs. That's not the way that I interact with the world around me. But I hope I'm making sense there, Greg. Like, I hope you get where I'm coming from. It's like, if someone wants to believe that the Sphinx is thousands of years old, I say that's totally cool. All I'm saying is that the evidence that we've got, the empirical evidence, well, all we've really got is the Sphinx. And if someone says, oh, it erodes over a certain time, great. Show me your control. Show me your method. Show me how you've shown that that particular material erodes at that rate over time. I'm happy to look. But in the absence of all of that, all we have is claims and conjecture for something which even the official story admits was only discovered 200 years ago. That's fair. And Robert Shock's not Jesus. And, you know, he could be absolutely wrong. I don't know. It's a difficult thing because I am with you in terms of there being so many deceptions in the past. And it's really hard to parse out where the truth may lie. And I'm not religious about any of my ideas or where I plant my flag. I generally go against the mainstream narrative and find something else in material that's based on something that makes sense to me. And it is a go with your gut type of thing. Because, you know, with what you just said, you kind of put us in a box where if something is a thousand years old, and it works both ways too, because how can Robert Shock be so sure that this is water erosion that happened over the span of lifetimes when you only have one lifetime with which to examine things? But that's kind of a catch-22 as well, because then if something is a thousand years old, you can't know it, I guess. Well, yeah, it's difficult to know. So all we can do is draw inferences. Okay, so I'm sure if you were to speak with John Anthony West or Robert Schock, 
I'm sure that if they were intellectually honest people, and I imagine they are, they would say, well, I don't know how old it is, but my research or my beliefs lead me to the inference that it's thousands and thousands of years old. I'm sure they would be forthright about that, that the best they can do is draw inferences from the evidence, which is all that any of us can do. And so if the inference that they draw leads them to many thousands of years old, again, that's totally cool with me. The point that I would make, though, is that even according to the official narrative, the Sphinx has been restored. So the Sphinx that you see if you go to Egypt, you're not even looking at the Sphinx as it was discovered, let alone as it was supposedly built. So even the empirical evidence, the direct line of sight that you can have of the Sphinx if you go and visit, even that, what you're looking at is a modern version of what was allegedly there thousands of years ago. And I suppose if I can make a point on that, I mentioned earlier that when I was a child, I loved the TV show Stargate and that a lot of the Stargate narrative is based around the narratives that we have of ancient Egypt. And it seems to me the more research that I do and the more that I look into the official stories of things, it seems to me as though there's a lot of myths that are built on top of myths that are built on top of myths, or there are narratives that are built on top of narratives that are built on top of narratives. So to give one example, I know somebody very well, and he's a really cool guy. I love the guy, actually. He's one of the most important people in my life that I've had on this journey so far in my life, someone who has been there to support me doing things that I think are worth doing, trying to improve my life and improve the life of people around me. This guy has done more to support me than most people. He happens to believe in ancient aliens. He happens to believe in the narrative that the ancient civilizations had direct contact with extraterrestrials. You know, the whole Dogon tribe from East Africa, this idea that they knew about Sirius and all this kind of thing. Right. Those are the narratives that he personally believes in. And I think a couple of years ago, when I was maybe being a little bit self-righteous with my skepticism, I think I didn't appreciate that that was how he made sense of the world around us. And that was something that he enjoyed reading the books about. I think he even went to a Von Daniken lecture when Von Daniken came to Australia, or one of these sort of well-known people who talk about these topics. And rather than be supportive of the fact that this story was important to him, I think I was too skeptical in the sense that I said to him, well, what's the evidence for this? What's the evidence for this? At the time, I didn't appreciate the importance of stories to humans. And so right now, we're in a situation where a large part of conspiracy culture and I like that term, by the way. I got conspiracy culture from you. I used to just call it the alternative realm or these kinds of things. But conspiracy culture is a good way to describe it. Mm-hmm. A large part of conspiracy culture now, people do believe in or they do propagate these narratives that are themselves built on other narratives. So if somebody like me comes along and says, well, maybe ancient Egypt is thousands of years old. I'm open-minded to that. But I've done some research and my research suggests that the primary evidence or the empirical evidence only goes back 150 years tops. What I'm doing is ipso facto undermining their belief in stories which are based on that. So if someone believes in ancient aliens and direct contact between the ancient civilizations and extraterrestrials, for instance, then when I come along and question the very notion that there was an ancient Egypt, then without trying to do so, I'm undermining the other narratives that people like to use to try to understand their place in this world. And like I was saying to you before we started recording, that's not my goal. I'm not here to take away people's beliefs. 
It's simply the case that by going down the skeptical path, I took away my own beliefs. You know, I mean, I still remember how much I used to love the show Stargate. And I'm sure if I watched an episode, I could still enjoy Richard Dean Anderson and the whole SG-1 crew. Like, I could still enjoy it, but not in the same way that I used to because so much of that narrative is built on what we think is real. We think the fictional Stargate narrative is built on the factual ancient Egypt narrative. But I've now come to the conclusion that the ancient Egypt narrative is itself fictional. So it's fiction built upon fiction. And I can completely understand why for some people this is offensive. They won't say that it's offensive. They'll call me crazy or they'll say that I must be trolling or whatever. But deep down, what I'm doing is I'm hurting their feelings because a lot of their meaning comes from these narratives. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that because none of us knows how we got here. Greg, I don't know how we got here. I don't know why we're here. I think about this every day. Why on earth am I here? We live in a bizarre world. There is some crazy things happening. And I don't plan to get, I don't want to, um, you know, divert into what some people call politics, but some of this stuff to do with what they're teaching children in school now about transgenderism and all of these kinds of things. This is a bizarre world for someone like me who's in his thirties. It wasn't that long ago that we were being told that the future was going to be so bright and we're all so tolerant now, but in many ways, it seems to me like we're living in some kind of weird dystopia, and it only seems to be speeding up at rapid pace. So I find myself thinking, like, what is going on here? Why am I here? How did I get here? And as a skeptic, it can be frustrating at times because it's now difficult for me to latch onto a narrative about who we are and why we're here. Whereas the atheist who goes to university, he can say, oh, well, we got here through evolution. You see, there was a primordial soup and there was bacteria, and over millions of years, that evolved to be what we are today. That's how we got here, you see, and there is no purpose to life. It's all just a cosmic accident, and eventually the sun will burn out, and that'll be the end of humanity, and that's why we're here, right? So they've got their narrative to believe in, and then many alternative people have their narrative to believe in. They'll say, oh, well, what happened was that ancient civilizations were contacted by extraterrestrials who gave them magical technology and taught them the truths of the world. And in fact, you know, humans themselves, thanks to Pan's Permia, they got here from other parts of the universe. They got here on a comet as bacteria. And that's how we got here. And, and so the point of what I'm saying is that when people buy into these narratives, what it gives them is a sense of who they are and why they're here. And I think it's natural for humans to want that. For me, as someone who now has taken up the practice of skepticism, I no longer have that. I can't tell you why I'm here. I can't tell you why we're here. And day to day, I don't have an answer to these things. And I've gotten used to that now. This is just the way that I live my life. Every day is a wonder to me that I'm even here. I can't explain why I'm here. I can't explain why you're here. I can't explain why we're here. So every day is a wonder to me and it's amazing to me. But there is this sense of me that thinks, I wish I could believe in something. I wish I could believe in Big Bang human evolution theory. Like I kind of wish I could go back to that. You know, I wish I could go back to how I was before I started looking for the evidence and spending my afternoons tracing through the sources. I wish I could go back to that. Or, you know, I wish I could be more like my friend who he has his Von Daniken books and he has his ideas about humans getting here from extraterrestrials or whatever the case is. And that gives him a sense of comfort. I wish I could be like that sometimes. It's a little bit like Cypher in the Matrix where Cypher's sitting there having his steak when he's chatting with the agent and he's saying, I know that this steak is fake. I know it's not real. I know this is just impulses in my brain 
telling me that this is a stake, but, you know, I enjoy it. And what he decides to do is to go back into being a normie, going back into being a believer of things, going back into the matrix. You know, I think about this a lot, this idea that, you know, if I could go back in time, would I tell the four-year-ago version of myself that the path that he's on is a good path? And I've got some evidence that it is, Greg. I mean, like I said, I've completely improved my diet and my exercise regime and so many things about my life. So in that sense, yes, being skeptical, revisiting what I thought that I knew, going right back to the start, looking for the evidence, yes, it has been beneficial. But in other ways, you know, maybe not. Maybe maybe I was happier believing the stories, even though ultimately many of them were based on absolutely no evidence whatsoever. I mean, cheers to that. And, you know, the Big Bang and creationism, the foundations of both sides of the dichotomy today of religion and science, I mean, they both come from the same place. The Big Bang was created by a Vatican astronomer. I find that very interesting because that's supposed to be the antithesis of scientific thought. So, yeah, I love digesting where things come from. And you make a good point about would you go back and go down this road? I mean, what do they say? Ignorance is bliss. I've got plenty of friends from high school that live simple but happy lives. And before this show worked out, I would often think, you know, God damn it, I wish I was as ignorant as so-and-so because I wish I could be happy with a mediocre job, standing behind a cash register and all that stuff. Unfortunately, I can't. So... You know, I kind of painted myself into a, a really tough position and a, created a standard that was really hard to get to. And luckily, in my case, it worked out. But I know exactly what you mean about ignorance is bliss. Wouldn't it be easier just to not wrestle with these questions and just live a simple and happy life? And I mean, obviously, we are where we are. So I think that this is the better choice. But, you know, with so much to digest of the history hoax, I always think a show like this flows best when we sort of poke in the holes and then try to get at the real deal. So I would hope we dug up enough here to get people questioning, but then we're left with, well, what is the truth then? And I know you said you don't know. I can't expect you to know, but can you talk to us about your model for who crafted such an epic conspiracy per se, rather than where we came from, but like who's behind the history hoax? Yeah, absolutely. Greg, are you familiar with the idea of synchronicities? I mean, I've heard you speak about it. Is this something that you do believe in, that some coincidences, they truly are meaningful? I would say, yeah, I do believe in that. And I also believe that if you pay more attention, they come at you more often. And it almost feels supernatural because they do happen at such a strange rate. And I'm open to the fact that it could just be random coincidence, but the more they stack up, the more I'm led to a different mode of thinking about them. Same here. I used to write these things off as pure coincidence. But now that I've started paying attention to what's happening, they seem to happen more. And people will say, oh, well, you're paying attention, so you'll notice them more. Yeah, of course, that makes sense. But some of the coincidences in my life recently have just been phenomenal to the point where I've gone from being someone who believes that there is only the material realm, there's only what we can see and touch and these kinds of things to someone who is now much more open to this idea that there's more than just the material going on. And another example of that was just a moment ago, you said ignorance is bliss, which I don't think I had brought up in this chat, but it ties in perfectly with everything we've been talking about because the model that I use, the, the way that I look at the world, 
it is mirrored or it is shown in a very similar way in a film that very few people have heard about called The 13th Floor. So when you were chatting with Gordon White, you guys are talking about how sometimes films can be used as a model or just as a framework for looking at the world, yeah. you know, sort of how do I convey to you the way that I see things? Sometimes by using films or other pop culture references, it's just a way to try and convey an idea that's in someone's mind. So one of the films that I use, one of the films that I like to use to try and describe to people the way that I see things is this film called The 13th Floor. And it was released in 1999, around about the same time as Dark City and The Matrix. And some of these films that they almost seem to be telling us what's going on, whether intentionally or otherwise, you know, some of the themes that they talk about, they do seem to relate to life as we see it, as people who have alternative views on things. So can I ask you, Greg, have you seen the film, The 13th Floor? Are you familiar with this late 1990s sci-fi epic? It's been referenced. I can pretty much picture the cover, but it is foggy. So give us the cliff notes. Yeah, so what happens is this character finds out that there's been a big disturbance and the boss of his company has apparently died and he's now a suspect. And the company that he runs is to do with what we might call virtual reality. They're developing virtual reality technology so that people can immerse themselves in a fictional world. And it is incredibly realistic to the point where it gets addictive. And I don't want to spoil the film for people. However, for me to describe to you the model that I'm using, I'm kind of going to let the cat out of the bag. So listeners, please forgive me for that. But basically what he discovers is that just as the alternative reality that he has created that seems so real and the fictional characters, the CGI characters seem so lifelike and realistic, he finds out that he himself is living in a fictional reality. And the way that he finds that out is because just before his boss died, had left behind a note to say, what you need to do is drive out to Tucson. Tucson being a city, obviously, in the United States. And he thinks to himself, well, why would I need to do that? So he drives out to Tucson, and what he discovers is that there's nothing there. Beyond the city limits, there is just a wireframe mesh. Okay, so he's been living his life thinking that he lives in a real world, and he thinks that he knows what's going on beyond the city limits. But actually, if you drive far enough where there's no other people, where no one else seems to be driving, no one else can be bothered driving out that far, everybody's happy in the city, no one tests the limits of their own reality. They just take it for granted. But if you do test the limits, such as through checking the sources of what we are told is history, by checking those limits, by checking through the sources, by doing something that other people will tell you is crazy, you might discover that our reality too is much like this. There is this wireframe mesh. In the case of history, we all just assume that there is all this other life out there, that there are experts who've double-checked and there are all these sources and all these books and all these tablets that must tell us what was happening thousands of years ago. And because all of us are so confident about that, very few of us check it. And I do feel as though I am one of the first people to use the Internet Archive, to use this amazing technology that we have, to take my own trip out to Tucson, to say, right, what is out there? I assume that there's a whole world out there. I assume that there is all this evidence for history, but I'm going to test it. And over the course of many days and weeks and months and years, what I discovered was that in the case of ancient history, 
in every direction, there's just a wireframe mesh. There is nothing more than that. What we think we know about ancient history thousands of years ago, there are no primary sources. There is nothing direct on which this is based. It is all a sham. There's nothing out there. <laughs> this reality that we're living in, we have all these ideas in our heads of what is going on out there and what we know and what the experts know. And we think we know what's going on. But if we take the time to take a drive out to Tucson, which I'm using as an analogy for taking the time to check through the sources of these stories, not just taking the expert's opinion, not just taking the consensus opinion, but looking for the primary sources or looking for the empirical evidence that we can see with our own eyes. If we do that, we will find that all there is out there is a wireframe mesh. All of us have been deceived. And because all of us have been deceived, we all assume we must be right because, hey, we're all in this together. So if history was a lie, somebody would have come and told us by now. <laughs> so we can just take it for granted that it's out there. Just as in the film, The 13th Floor, you can just take it for granted that Tucson exists. You don't need to drive out there. <laughs> if it wasn't there, someone would have told us by now. Well, in the film, the guy who was running the CGI, he says, look, you need to go and test this for yourself. And when the protagonist of the film does that, he discovers it's all a wireframe mesh. And I feel like that's what I'm doing now. I'm saying to you and I'm saying to your audience, if you want to believe that Tucson is out there, go on believing because maybe you're happier that way. Maybe I was happier that way, but it's too late for me now. I have gone and looked for Tucson and it's not real. Okay. Tucson being an analogy to the primary sources of history, they don't exist. We've been completely deceived. And not only this, you can try and tell all of your friends and family about this. They won't listen. They'll think you're crazy. You can even tell people who say that they're open-minded. They won't listen. They won't check. You can tell people who say that they're into research, alternative research. They won't check for the sources. They're happy believing what they believe. This is an incredibly lonely path because most people will never try this. And again, using that same analogy, if you try and force people into the car, if you say, look, I've got the car ready. The car's all warmed up. I know how to get there. Come with me. I'll drive. You can just sit there and relax. And in a couple of hours, I'm going to show you the wireframe mesh. Most people won't jump in the car. Even if you say, look, I'll pay for the gas. I'll do everything. Just come with me and see what I've found. They won't come along and have a look with you. They don't want to know. That is the reality that we're living in. Only a very small percentage of us, and I mean a tiny, 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 tiny percentage of people, will ever take the time to check through the sources for themselves. Only a tiny percentage of people will do what I've done. I drove out to the middle of Australia. It took me three days to get to a dinosaur museum in the heart of the Australian outback where they let you see the holotype specimen of dinosaurs. They let you see what is supposed to be the original dinosaur, okay? Because most of what you see in museums, they admit is just a recreation. There's not many places where a layman, a regular person, can see the holotype specimen. Well, I did that. It took me three days to drive to the middle of Australia. I live in Brisbane, which is on our east coast. I had to drive all the way into Winton. I wanted to see for myself, what is your evidence? And when I saw it, I thought, it figures. I, <laughs> I kind of knew it was going to be like this. It's all a sham, Greg. It's all a sham. <laughs> all of it's a sham. But most people are never going to take that drive. And so to tie all of this in, at the beginning of the film, The 13th Floor, the character who was killed after he writes the note to say, take a drive to Tucson, he writes on his note, he says, 
all of my life I've heard people say that ignorance is bliss and for the first time I agree with them. And for me that's powerful stuff. It's like, yeah, once you see that it's all a wireframe mesh, maybe you're going to wish you didn't know that. Maybe you're going to wish that you just believed all the stories you believed and when people like John LeBond came along, you said, no, nah, he's crazy. He's crazy. Must be making it up. Must be a troll. Must be a government agent sent to discredit the truth movement. Must be all of these things. He can't possibly be onto something here. I'm going to ignore him. Well, for the small percentage of your audience who does go and try and disprove me and find primary sources for Herodotus and these kinds of characters, primary sources, not, not appeals to authority or appeals to consensus. I mean, actual primary source evidence. The tiny percentage of your audience who takes a tribe out to Tucson, they're going to see wireframe mesh. <laughs> and <laughs> boy, oh boy, my friend, it's the skeptic path is a lonely path. <laughs> well, I love it, man. I mean, this is all super provocative. I think you're definitely hitting us with some raw truth because you're right. A lot of people aren't going to actually do the work. They'll make an emotional appeal and shake their fist. But I would love for someone to hit you with something where you have to come back and say, well, maybe I should look at that. And that's on them to do. And I think this was a really fun ride. And I know that it might have been a little abrasive or triggering at the beginning, but I hope people stuck with it. And yes, I just appreciate common ground. And I like a lot of things you said. And about that Hollywood Secret Society, I just wanted to remind the listeners that we recently did a show with Court Lindahl. And he talked about writers guilds that Edgar Allan Poe and Jules Verne were a part of. I know you know this, but it goes back way further than Hollywood. Like they've obviously upgraded the technology to film, but this template of guilds or secret societies crafting the stories that real stuff pops out of or real ideas pop out of, though it is fiction, that's not new. And it is really interesting. There's a deep rabbit hole there. And if this is the track that you're on now, I mean, I hope you'll come back when that research comes to a completion point, if that's even possible. And it is just a really great way to uh, cast into the future our intention to do this again sometime. Greg, if I'm welcome back on your show, I will absolutely be here again. And I didn't want to say this at the start of the call because it might have come across the wrong way, but your work has been an inspiration for me. And to see you succeeding, I remember listening to a call of yours from years ago where you were saying that your teachers at school were basically trying to suggest that you weren't going to be successful or you were wasting your talent or whatever the case might have been. And for you, it was a case of, well, I'm going to do this podcast and if I get successful, it's going to kind of show the teachers that they doubted me when they shouldn't have doubted me or words to that effect. I'm kind of paraphrasing the message that I got from you yeah. in that podcast. But this was a few years ago back when I was basically just podcasting as a hobby. And it took me a little while to develop a research methodology and ideas to present to people that was interesting enough to build an audience. And so this has been a long journey that never even started off trying to build a member-based website, but that's where I'm at right now. And your work, seeing that you could do this, even if a lot of the topics that you talk about on your podcast and many of your guests are basically the complete opposite of me in terms of what they're trying to do, <laughs> that doesn't change the fact that I respect what you've done with the podcast and when you contacted me to say, do you want to come on the show? I was like, this is fantastic. And I've been looking forward to this for months and months and months. And I can't thank you enough for the opportunity to speak with your audience. So I hope that my first appearance on the show was okay. I think I uh, started off a little bit rusty and 
maybe need to work on drinking more water as the call goes on so the voice isn't so raspy. But I've had a great time. This has been a very enjoyable call. I can't thank you enough for it. I know you've got a lot of editing to do to fix all of this up, but I hope that the final product is up to the standard that you and your audience are looking forward to. And if I'm ever welcome back on the show, I will take the opportunity with open arms, assuming that you don't do a hatchet job on me and edit the hell out of this podcast, but I'm sure you won't, Greg. I'm sure it'll be a nice, fair representation of the call. And uh, no, truly, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you're doing. Like I said, I heard you in that call with Gordon a few weeks ago where you said that you were a little bit jaded by the conspiracy culture, and I completely empathize with that, but I think what you're doing is good, and basically you're saying to people, look, you don't have to be scared of what's happening. You don't have to have a negative attitude. There are good things that are happening, and there's no one stopping you from doing the higher side chats. There's no one stopping me from doing johnthebond.com. Anybody who wants to do this kind of thing, it can do it, and I can't speak for you, but I can say for me that by delving into this research, by sharing it with people, by having people out there who've signed up to my website and sent me nice emails and supported the thing that I'm trying to do here, it's been a truly magnificent thing for my life. And so I kind of see this call as almost like a milestone in the journey because, you know, I started off listening to your podcast and here I am now chatting with you and yeah, it's been terrific. So thank you very much. If I'm invited back again, I'll be here. Don't worry about that. Right on, man. Well, I appreciate the kind words. You did a great job. This is the longest show I've done in a while. The people should know that you got up at 7 a.m. for this, so I appreciate that. And I think you got a provocative body of work. You're a good speaker. And I think this was a great time. No matter where someone might fall on the conspiratorial spectrum. And before we go, give the people what they need to really dig deeper into what you do. The website, the YouTube, that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we started the call at 7. I actually set my alarm for 6 o'clock on my day off because I wanted to revise a few notes before the call. And a lot of people out there will be saying, six o'clock, that's a sleep in for me. And that's fair enough. But yeah, for me, six (laughs) o'clock is a little bit early. So uh, I might have been a bit rusty, but no, I'm glad I got up early and and had this call. It's a great start to the day. It's only half past 10 now, so I can go and do what needs to be done. And as for the website, if you just go to johnlebon.com, you'll see that I've got literally dozens and dozens and dozens of articles about all kinds of things. Today, we've spoken about the history hoax and a few other things that I think might be hoaxes. So I've got a ton of material on there now. A lot of it is available publicly, absolutely for free, no uh, cost necessary to access it. I also have a membership section where I go into more detail about some of my research. And I'm fortunate that the website is going well and it's starting to become a pretty decent side business, which is allowing me to spend more time doing the research and it's all going very well. So the way to see more of my work is to go to johnlebon.com and also dinoskeptic.com. In the next few weeks, I'll be releasing a film that I actually did the principal photography for last year. I went out into the middle of Australia to record all the footage I could of these holotype specimens in the outback of Australia. And I did a lot of research into the official story of these dinosaurs, the scientific papers that are used to supposedly verify that these dinosaurs are real. So I did a lot of research, recorded a lot of footage, and that film will be released sooner rather than later. And you'll be able to see that at dinoskeptic.com. So johnthebond.com and dinoskeptic.com. And also check out the show notes for this call with Greg. He'll put the uh, little JPEG image, my little diagram that I've got for the Library of Alexandria. And I think if nothing else, it's worth checking that out just to get more of an idea of what I'm trying to suggest is happening with this thing that we call history. So I'll wrap it up there, Greg. I'll shut up now and let you do your closing monologue. And thanks once again to yourself and to listeners and to 
everybody out there. And until next time, you guys take care of yourselves. For sure. Awesome. Thanks again. Good luck with everything. Hopefully we can get you away from that busy street before next time. Let's get that membership taken off. But until then, man, keep doing what you do. Take care of yourself. Yes, people. John Laban, JLB coming in hot. <laughs> the man pulls no punches. But seriously, I did like this one. He's pretty extreme, but John isn't throwing things out willy-nilly. He's methodical. He knows where these sources can be traced to. And he's confident in why he thinks what he thinks. He definitely made me think twice about Tesla in the second hour. Or really, I should say third hour, because this interview is about two hours and 50 minutes even after editing. So pretty damn long. And the free portion is a bit longer because I didn't want to cut a person off in the middle of making their case for something so grand. It's not really fair. Because it takes a while to wade through all the little details that stack up towards the conclusion. And regardless of how you feel about the case, I would like a person to be able to make a full one. And it is funny that we talked about the show I did with Gordon. I hope a little explanation there was useful for people who were offended by what I said. And when I say something about the conspiracy community, that is not an insult to THC fans directly. I think of us as separate, really. We're actually just a small part of that community, and I like to think a higher caliber portion of it. I don't know. It really was just a plea to not lose sight of having some type of goal within conspiracy research. Sometimes people get feelings of self-importance because they've discovered the new thing on YouTube. Obviously, that can be done to a fault. I don't know why that's controversial. People like the term truth-seeking. I don't really like that term. It's too vague. It's got a lot of overused context and a lot of residue on it from things that are not the truth. Betterment, I think, is a clearer word. And I like to think John and I are pretty aligned in that department. He seems like he's got a lot more discipline than I do, but that's normal. Could say that about pretty much anybody. But I would hope this show serves as a good example of how two people can respect each other and talk about things they might disagree on, but stay focused on the arguments and the data. I know John was a bit guarded, or should I say skeptical, of me even and my motivations, but that seems to be his nature to a degree. And in his defense, I've heard some previous interviews with him, and the host can be really shady and attack his character, speculate about his background, that kind of thing. And I would admit I am a little curious to hear more about his background but it doesn't really have much to do with the information presented. I always try to focus on the information rather than the messenger. Some would say to a fault, but the challenge either way has been issued. And I'm going to make John a Plus member. Hopefully he will engage with some of the comments there if you do have counter evidence to present. He doesn't need to just hear that his theories are ridiculous. I'm sure he's been told that. But if you have counter evidence, that could be useful. I do sort of understand this argument that, well, if this is our past, if this is the human story, why are we just rediscovering it all in the last 200 years? Why isn't it just in the record? Sometimes it does feel like we were plopped down out of nowhere and we're learning about the past as if it was just input in the simulation. But I did do some digging after the fact. I know he focused on the garbage heap papyri. And again, I don't know 
about these as primary texts. I guess they could be made up, but if you go to pyramidtextsonline.com, they have a pretty vast library of documents. I haven't vetted them to trace them to their sources, but I've also seen a lot of Egyptian artifacts in museums. Not necessarily papyri, but a lot of this stuff is written on sarcophaguses and walls. And I've seen some of those artifacts in the British Museum, for one. And can we trust museums? Maybe not. Maybe that's completely problematic. But I have seen a lot of hieroglyphs, it seems. Maybe I've been caught up in the mystique. But here are a few lines from pyramidtextsonline.com. They say the pyramid texts are the oldest body of literature from ancient Egypt, first carved on the walls of the burial chambers in the pyramid of kings and queens of the Old Kingdom. They provide the earliest comprehensive view of the way in which the ancient Egyptians understood the structure of the universe, the role of the gods, and the fate of human beings after death. Their importance lies in their antiquity and in their endurance throughout the entire intellectual history of ancient Egypt. The volume contains the complete translation of the pyramid texts, including new texts recently discovered and published. It incorporates full translations and readings indicated by post-Old Kingdom copies of the texts. To fast forward a little bit, it says, In the Middle Kingdom, many texts were borrowed from the pyramid chambers and mingled with new spells. This new form, which today we call coffin texts, were usually written inside coffins. These eventually gave way to what we now know as the Book of the Dead. The collections of spells were usually written on rolls of papyrus, that is, in the form of an Egyptian book. Presented here are 70 Book of the Dead documents housed in the Oriental Institute Museum at the University of Chicago. These documents, represented in whole or in part, all 18th Dynasty or later, include seven papyri, three coffins, a shroud, a statuette, and several other engraved artifacts. So I guess it's about what you consider worthwhile evidence if it has to be written in papyri. I mean, there are some examples there, but obviously that's the most brittle of substances on which to write. So we have a lot of wall inscriptions that are still hanging around and coffin inscriptions. At least that's how I understand it. I don't think that's incredibly controversial. But either way, I'm not trying to just make a bunch of counter-arguments now that John is gone. That's not really fair. I did think this show was a ton of fun, though, and I don't have to agree with everything John says to like it. It's interesting because so many people do preface their emails to me with, dude, I don't agree with every guest, but I do love your show. Well, why do we feel the need to say that? Are we ashamed to have some radical ideas, thoughts, or beliefs? If I say, yeah, I like the Joe Rogan experience broadly, I can put it in the like category. It doesn't mean I don't have criticisms, but there are so many episodes with so many guests who are all complete individuals. I wouldn't feel the need to let people know that I don't agree with every guest. I mean, that seems like a given. Every guest doesn't agree with every guest. It's not like in either case, there's a singular narrative. We're just more extreme. And so I think there is a bit of programming there that we are meant to be ashamed to be associated with alternative ideas. Just something I've noticed. I also didn't think Robert Schock's perspective on the Sphinx was going to be such a big chunk of this show. But I also wanted to clarify some of that because I didn't have all my ducks in a row. And as for rain in Egypt now, yes, it says lower Egypt where most of the pyramids are located. 
does not receive much rain. In fact, Cairo generally registers less than one inch of rainfall per year, with even less recorded along the corridor of pyramids. However, sometimes after years without rain, a flash flood will drench the area. Regardless of the time of year you visit, you probably will not encounter rain. And then if we're going to Robert Schock's website, just to read his breakdown of his own work, he does have a pretty good summation of the research highlights. He says, Many people know me best from my work on the Great Sphinx of Giza. The Great Sphinx sits near the Great Pyramid on the western bank of the Nile, outside of modern Cairo. According to standard Egyptological thinking, the Great Sphinx was carved from the limestone bedrock on the orders of an old kingdom pharaoh around 2500 BCE. In 1990, I first traveled to Egypt with John Anthony West with the sole purpose of examining the Great Sphinx from a geological perspective. I assumed that the Egyptologists were correct in their dating, but soon I discovered that the geological evidence was not compatible with what the Egyptologists were saying. On the body of the Sphinx and on the walls of the Sphinx enclosure, I found heavy erosional features that I concluded could only have been caused by rainfall and water runoff. The thing is, the Sphinx sits on the edge of the Sahara Desert and the region has been quite arid for the last 5,000 years. Furthermore, various structures securely dated to the Old Kingdom only show erosion that was caused by wind or sand, which is very distinct from water erosion. To make a long story short, I came to the conclusion that the oldest portions of the Great Sphinx, which I refer to as the core body, must date back to an earlier period, at least 5000 BCE, and my latest research now points to the end of the last ice age, circa 10,000 BCE, a time when the climate was very different and included more rain. Many people have said to me that the Great Sphinx cannot be so old, in part because the head is evidently a dynastic Egyptian head and the dynastic period did not start until about 3000 BCE. In fact, if you look at the current Great Sphinx, you may notice that the head is actually too small for the body. It is clear to me that the current head is not the original head. The original head would have been severely weathered and eroded. It was later recarved during the dynastic times and in the recarving, naturally it became smaller. Thus, the head of the Great Sphinx is not the original head. In fact, the Sphinx may not have originally been a Sphinx at all. Perhaps it was a lion. And then just to read one more paragraph here at the end, he says, Back in the early 90s, when I suggested the Great Sphinx was much older than generally believed at the time, I was challenged by Egyptologists who asked, Where is the evidence of that earlier civilization that could have built the Sphinx? They were sure the sophisticated culture, which we call civilization, did not exist prior to about 3000 or 4000 BCE. Now, however, there is evidence of high culture dating back to approximately 12,000 years ago at a site in Turkey known as Gobekli Tepe. So I know in both of those things I read, there are things that John would pull apart and take issue with. This is just one geologist's opinion, but I was trying to use it as an example of evidence that isn't based on following the chain of custody of documents. And also is a narrative that the official chronology keepers want to shut down. But I do admit there are some assumptions and maybe there's not a lot to go on there. But that's Robert Schock's argument. I just wanted to present it clearly here as an addendum because I didn't think I was super clear in the episode. But I would have John back. He seemed a bit doubtful there at the end, but in the last hour, we touched on some really great stuff, and I would definitely have him back to get deeper into the idea of demonic origins of technology. 
and I don't want to cherry pick or overly control the topics discussed, but I think that is way more interesting than the question of if dinosaurs and nukes are real. That is just me as a person trying to curate entertaining shows. Obviously, I also like to seek common ground, and even with someone so extreme in their views, I think I can do that. John, when he was giving me credit there at the end, said that I'm trying to do the complete opposite of what he's trying to do. And I think that's a little strong because I see us more aligned in intention than he might. But whatever. I always say an exploration of ideas is not an official endorsement for me or the show. We are just picking brains and trying to be fair about it. I don't know why I have to constantly say that, but I do. Anyway, if you only heard the free portion, let me tell you about the Plus Show. Lots of provocative stuff. We talked about the importance of getting sunlight and grounding, but also what that says about us and our environment. I also got John's thoughts on the work of Anatoly Fomenko. We talked about catastrophism, casting doubt on the Library of Alexandria. That was a healthy chunk, and John asked me to include a image in the show notes. I'm going to do that. Kind of shows the chain of custody of that information and why he thinks it's a bullshit story. And then we cast a doubt on the existence of Nikola Tesla. I thought those arguments were quite interesting. I didn't expect them to be as convincing as they were. And then we got into L. Frank Baum. That was great. And it led right into a little talk about spiritual sources for technology And then we just had to wrap it up, even though we were hitting on a real hot spot. Gives us some stuff for next time. But also tonight, Friday, August 31st at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time is the first Higher Side Chats joint session. If you have stories or encounters to share, theories and ideas, I would love to hear them. We can talk about whatever, but I'm trying to avoid this being a Q&A or a guest request hotline. I get a lot of that by email. And we have separate Q&A shows if you want to check that stuff out. I would like this to be a chance for people to share their experiences with the wider audience or their personal research, anecdotes, that kind of stuff. I'm here all the time talking about my thoughts and the wrap-ups of these shows. I think we can do something much more entertaining than another Q&A with me. But we'll see. And until then, I'm out of here. Hope you had a good time and got plenty of fresh ideas to mull over. Big thanks to John. I've done my part. Your move history hoaxers, timeline extenders, and sorcerers of scholarship. Your fucking move. Oh no. You see. The world isn't random. It's attached to puppet strings. Control over everything A nine to five is trying to steal ya Now don't that job seem silly Hello, can you hear me? Or should I play back recordings From some spying agency Wish we were younger and free I'll be thankful when it's all exposed The vast conspiracy There's such a difference Between us And the damn rush out 
Time. 